The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Gia Kokotakis, intern at Lawfare, with an episode of Rational Security for July 16th, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled, The Long Middle Finger of Europe Edition. This week, Anderson, Jurassic, and Rosenstein sat down with Ravi Agrawal to discuss NATO's annual summit in Vilnius the Biden administration's controversial decision to send U.S. cluster munitions to Ukraine, Mark Zuckerberg's launch of threads, and more. This is Rational Security. So every time I think about Vilnius, which, to be honest, I don't think about very often, I just think of the hunt for Red October. And I'm just wondering if I'm the only person that is treating this as the hunt for Red October themed NATO summit. Probably, yes, but I do get the reference. (laughs) I shouldn't be the only person. That's sad. I can only think of Russian being spoken with a Scottish accent thanks to that movie. It's like the only, the first like three minutes where they actually have Sean Connery speaking Russian before they zoom in on his mouth and then they all switch to English is like the most distinctly Scottish accented Russian you can ever hear. And it's amazing. It's a great movie. I love that movie. But that part of it is like hard to get out of your head. It's an amazing movie. And so my, my, I think I mentioned this a few times. My parents are, are, were born in the Soviet Union and I grew up speaking Russian. Um, And this is also one of my parents' favorite movies because it's an amazing movie. And I saw it 17 times when I was a kid and we all love everything about it. But I, I do think, I do recall every time the first few scenes of Sean Connery going, Haladriga, which is <laughs> him saying it's very cold in Russian with a Scottish accent. You can see my father kind of twitch a little bit. It's so <laughs> painful to listen to if you speak Russian. It's amazing, though. So this is a, probably a bad time for me to admit that I've never actually seen The Hunt for Red October. Oh, that's not oh acceptable. <laughs> you, need to, you need to fix that immediately. I'll, I'll yeah. watch. I'll watch Chinatown if you watch uh, Hunt for October. I was trying to remember what movie yeah, you had seen. For a moment, I thought it was The Godfather, but it's Chinatown. Uh, it, it, it had been The Godfather until a year ago. God damn it, Alan! <laughs> I, I want to know, Ravi, when when did you see The Hunt for Red October? Well, I've I've just been sitting silently because I'm embarrassed. I haven't seen it. Oh, I have I'm seen Chinatown alone. and The Godfather, but you know, on on movies, I. Uh, 
there's a joke within our family that you never admit to what you haven't seen because with my in-laws um, and my wife, the minute you say you haven't seen X in front of them, there's this collective chorus of like, oh my God, how could you have not seen it? You have, we have to watch it now. Okay. We're going to drop everything and we're going to watch it now. And, and so I, I just sit silent. But the hunt for October is policy. worth dropping everything to watch. Okay, I will do it. I will do it. <laughs> it is a great movie. <laughs> what this reminds me of, there's a scene in a, a David Lodge novel. He writes comic novels about campus life where there's a group of professors who are playing a game where you have to name the most embarrassing book that you haven't read. Um, they're all in English literature. And so, you know, they're one-upping each other, right? They haven't read Joyce, um, etc. And one of them wins the game uh, by saying he hasn't run Hamlet. Uh, <laughs> but then he gets fired. <laughs> <laughs> Let that be a cautionary tale to anyone who has not watched Land for October and, and claims to be a foreign policy expert. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be here in the virtual studio this week with my two other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are thrilled to be back for the second time with our esteemed guest, the editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy Magazine, Ravi Agrawal. Ravi, thank you much for joining us again today this week. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, we are excited to have you back on the podcast because we have had a very busy week in international affairs in the world, which I know you and your wonderful outlet have been watching very closely. We have seen some big meetings going down in Europe, um, a big show of strength by European and NATO allies to Russia. And in honor of that, we're calling this week's episode the Long Middle Finger of Europe edition as the long shadow of the collective signal Europe is trying to send to Russia and its allies falls across the continent uh, from Vilnius to Moscow. As always on Rational Security. Classy as always. Classy as always. <laughs> For our first topic this week, Pledge Week. In a sign of strength, NATO held its annual summit in the capital city of Vilnius, Lithuania, this week, just kilometers from the border with Belarus. But those hoping to join the club have gotten a bit of a mixed reception, with NATO members securing a clear path for Sweden to join the alliance at last without presenting quite as clear a way forward for embattled Ukraine. What do we learn about the state of the alliance from this week's historic meeting? Topic two, cluster ruckus. Late last week, the Biden administration made the controversial decision to provide U.S. cluster munitions, a type of weapon that many U.S. allies have banned by treaty due to concerns about civilian casualties to its ally, Ukraine. Is it the right move and what might it mean on the battlefield and after the war is over? Topic three, needling and threads. Mark Zuckerberg appears to have finally gotten under the skin of tech billionaire Elon Musk as his recently launched competitor to Musk's beleaguered Twitter platform Threads launched last week and soon secured over 100 million users. Has Twitter finally met its match and what will Threads and other competitors mean for the future of the information and disinformation economy? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So the leaders of NATO are meeting this week, as they do once a year, uh, this time in uh, Vilnius in Lithuania. So usually these NATO summits are always interesting, but they're often devoted to sort of technical topics about cooperation and mostly cajoling from America to NATO member states to increase their defense spending. Uh, obviously, this year, it's quite a bit different with the 
uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, entering into its second year with uh, no obvious end in sight. Um, there are a lot of stories here. I think two have been the, the main ones. One, obviously, is the war in Russia and NATO support for Ukraine, Zelensky coming and trying at the very least to get uh, assurances of continued support, which I think does appear to be the case, but uh, also hitting some real roadblocks in what has been a I think, quite aggressive campaign from him to try to get uh, NATO membership. I don't think he thought or anyone thought that NATO was going to extend Ukraine membership while Ukraine was fighting a war with Russia, because, of course, then NATO would be fighting a war with Russia, which, as uh, President Biden has pointed out, would be the definition of World War Three. Um, but Zelensky clearly wants a, uh, a clear timeline uh, after the war is over for Ukraine to join NATO. Uh, and there's been some some pushback. And I think we should talk about uh, why that is and whether you know what the merit or lack of merit is to that. So that's kind of the main story, number one. And the main story, number two, is Turkey, in particular, Turkey's president, uh, Erdogan, uh, finally stopping, at least for the moment, playing the role of spoiler in Sweden's ascension to NATO. Uh, Sweden and Finland, of course, decided to join NATO after Russia's invasion. Finland has since joined in the main stumbling block uh, for Sweden uh, was uh, Erdogan because of some concerns about Sweden not doing enough to combat uh, what Erdogan views as uh, anti-Turkish Kurdish terrorists in Sweden. Uh, Erdogan seems to have decided to stop being annoying in this regard. And so it looks like Sweden will join NATO. So a lot to discuss there. But first, I just want to go to you, Ravi. I mean, a, a NATO uh, conference is maybe the kind of platonic ideal of foreign policy uh, issues. And so I'm <laughs> sure you have just a, a lot of thoughts generally. What's your general takeaway from how this is, is going? And we should also know, you know, as usual, we're recording this on Wednesday morning. Uh, the NATO summit is very much ongoing. So by the time this podcast drops, which will be on Thursday, uh, you know, some of the details may have changed. Yeah, I think, I mean, the headline really is that much of the summit has proceeded as planned other than uh, the big flip-flop from uh, Turkey's Erdogan, who, you know, for the longest time uh, said that, you know, certain conditions needed to be met for Sweden to join NATO. Um, the day before the summit, he dangled the idea that uh, Sweden's uh, entry into NATO was in some way sort of dependent on Turkey entering the EU, which was a whole separate set of uh, discussions, uh, then suddenly sort of flip-flopped at the end when he announced that uh, he would back uh, Sweden's accession uh, into NATO. That sort of surprised, I think, some observers, at least uh, in terms of the way in which he did that. And again, I think much of that can be tied to the fact that the U.S. is going to speed up some deliveries of F-16 fighters to Ankara, um, and also the fact that Turkey actually really needs the West much more than it did before, because its economy seems to be struggling in a variety of ways. Um, so we might end up seeing uh, a different Erdogan and a different Turkey in the next few years in this sort of latest iteration of Turkey. Uh, under Erdogan after he won um, re-election recently. But more broadly, I think, you know, the bits that we were expecting were increased security guarantees to Ukraine. We already knew that um, the US would end up giving cluster munitions uh, to Ukraine. And I think Zelensky uh, seemingly upset at the fact that 
Ukraine not only can't join NATO, which no one expected uh, was going to happen while uh, Ukraine is at war, um, because that would mean all of NATO would have to join in, in the war as well in a formal way. Um, but more than that, I think he seems to have been upset uh, that there hasn't been much sort of a, a much much description of a clear pathway um, for how Ukraine could join in the future. And the argument there really is that um, if there isn't a clear pathway and that if you kick the can down the road, then that emboldens the likes of Putin uh, to keep doing what he's doing. So my sense is that that's really a broad overview, but we mustn't forget that Sweden's joining um, is actually a big deal. I think it has tangible, real changes for the security alliance. Um, it's also one more knock against Russia because it sort of confirms that Russia's decision to invade Ukraine has kind of backfired. And then lastly, um, the whole thing, as many things are in diplomacy, is a show of force. And the fact that all of these member states, 31, soon to be 32, can get together in this way um, with all this attention from the world's media is another signal of, of the group's rejuvenation and strength. And Putin will be watching that very closely. Yeah, I just wanted to pull out one one point, um, which was about Sweden's joining. Um, and you pointed out that if Sweden joins, there are some real strategic implications here. And I'd love for you to actually just draw that out a little bit. We hear a lot about how big of a deal it would be if the the, the Baltic Sea becomes a, a NATO lake, I think is the term. But why exactly? I mean, you know, Russia still has Kaliningrad. Hmm. Yeah, there are quite a few reasons why Sweden's joining, I think, is being seen as an important uh, addition. I mean, so Finland joined already. Finland, traditionally neutral, um, shares this long border um, with Russia. But Sweden um, has a very strong navy, which would end up strengthening NATO's defenses uh, in the Baltic Sea. It also builds its own fighter jets, um, which uh, sort of diversifies the types of fighter jets that the alliance as a whole uses. Um, and if there is any sort of uh, backlog or struggles to sort of resupply, um, then the fact that they do their own thing is also seen as very useful. But then, I mean, you know, the increased sort of presence in the Baltics also uh, is very helpful. I mean, the Baltic Sea itself is a strategic waterway. It's bordered by St. Petersburg, as well as other sort of vulnerable NATO states. You've, of course, got Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania around all of that. So, you know, all of that makes Sweden's accession really important. And then lastly, it's a member of the Arctic Council, which uh, in the end would allow NATO to sort of be more of a player um, and to sort of shift its kind of focus a little bit more northwards as well, further putting pressure on Russia. All of that, I'm sure, when when Vladimir Putin looks at that as outcomes, very clear outcomes from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, those are big setbacks for him. I, I think that's a really astute observation about uh, you know the big impact on Sweden. Although I also want to voice a little bit of a note of caution that the Sweden saga is is categorically over, which seems to be what people are assuming here. The process of NATO expansion generally has certain procedural steps. They actually essentially adopt a corresponding international agreement to when they bring additional members into NATO. And that agreement has to be approved by the individual national governments once it's drafted and circulated. And that's a step, meaning that there's at least a couple more weeks if, or months in which you could see Erdogan shift his position, adjust his position, seek additional leverage. I mean, Erdogan is a guy who 
is kind of notoriously mercurial, as I think his recent performance underscores, and shameless about really pursuing even small marginal advantage and using every bit of leverage he has. So I wouldn't be surprised if we hear a little more chatter um, that throws a little dust in the way, although certainly making a public statement at such a large event does seem to at least move the momentum towards Sweden's membership uh, in a much more positive direction. The Ukraine part is really interesting, too. You know, the, the reactions in my mind. Ukraine has a really, really effective public relations strategy that is designed to pressure NATO members primarily uh, and other allies to maximize support for them. And that strategy is essentially to say, we love what you're giving us, but we're never satisfied with it. You can always give us more and you always should give us more. And I think a lot of this NATO conversation fits a little bit into that bucket, but there may be one added element that's a little more contentious. You know, as Ravi, as you know, like, I completely agree. I don't think anyone came into this thinking Ukraine was going to get membership anytime soon or, frankly, was going to get a firm commitment to join. It's a controversial decision. Other NATO members are going to have issues with it. It's something you have to talk over a lot more and probably not really going to see a solid discussion until the war is at least headed on a trajectory towards ending because of the broader, you know, alliance implications. But, you know, we see a level of coordination. There's this clear sign of support for Ukraine. But here it does seem like Ukraine wanted something more like clear benchmarks, a clear path to say, here's the things we need to do and a timeline in which we can expect to see it considered or expect to get us evaluated on those benchmarks to move towards membership. And they didn't even get that. And I actually think that is a little bit of a concern that ties into Ukrainian domestic politics. A lot of the big barriers that seem to exist for particularly the Biden administration and a lot of countries that probably would be much more open to Ukraine joining NATO than maybe certain other NATO members like Poland is a lot of domestic reform around things like transparency, democratic governance, corruption. And it's this interesting tension, right? We know in NATO history, NATO brought in Turkey and Greece and other members for geopolitical strategic reasons primarily, and at various times has found that to be problematic because they're allies that bring in a lot of problems to the alliance that don't always share values, same share the same agenda. I think there's some concern about that, about Ukraine too. It's hard to reconcile that with our vision of the, the genuine and accurate vision of heroism that we see coming out of Ukraine every day, where they really are at the forefront of a functioning democracy. But they're also a democracy that has a lot of systematic problems yet. And addressing them is really difficult. And it's going to be domestically difficult for Zelensky or anyone else. And I think there may have been a hope they may have been able to use this moment to leverage NATO to relax some of those requirements, signal that some of this stuff we're going to find ways around or we're going to stop caring about as much. And the fact that the NATO alliance wasn't inclined to do that, I, I do think maybe hits a little closer to home for Zelensky and other Ukrainian politicians, because it means that they're going to still feel a lot of international pressure to try and make progress on these really difficult, deeply intense domestic issues that are are going to be really challenging for them to tackle it's certainly against the backdrop of a war, but even if the war were to end, are still going to be really, really big challenges. Yeah, those are such great points. I mean, you know, just to riff on what you said about Ukraine's PR being great, um, they have consistently, right from the start, framed themselves as being, you know, at the vanguard of the fight between democracies and autocracies, as being the defenders of sovereignty, as, you know, even being able to reframe a relationship with the West where it's so clear that they need the West. But in recent months, they've also begun to say, wait a minute, you need us. We are the ones who are fighting off the Russians. We are the ones who are battle-hardened and battle-trained. And if you want NATO to have a really strong military in the future, we're the ones who could 
give you that strength and support. We're the ones who have, you know, a military that the whole world has seen as being, you know, heroic, as fighting in a way and a manner that has inspired, I think, some of the other countries as well. So they're, I think, very cleverly at the world stage, able to put forward what they've done so far and to take it beyond just their borders. I mean, their constant framing of Russia's invasion as something that cuts at the heart of the rules-based liberal order. They've also taken this message, by the way, outside of Europe. Um, they frequently now engage with the global south. They've, in fact, invested a lot of time and effort and, and um, people into traveling around the world to go speak to people in New Delhi, uh, in Doha, uh, and elsewhere, and say, look, this could happen to you as well uh, in the future, not just by Russia, but potentially by China. And so, you know, when we are the ones who are defending borders, who are defending the very idea of sovereignty, you need to support us. And I think that that's part of their pitch about NATO as well. They're making it sort of existential. They're making it about values and ideals, which makes it so much harder to resist them. I mean, beyond the stuff, the obvious stuff that that you've pointed out about corruption, about democracy, uh, other rules that NATO has often imposed on potential member states. And there's a pathway to that. And I think that's why uh, Zelensky seemed as upset as he did this week. They want a pathway. They have very clearly said, I think Zelensky tweeted, um, that uncertainty is weakness. They want strength, and therefore they want some certainty. They want a path. So I want to go back to Erdogan for a minute. Um, at risk of opening a real can of worms, do we have any sense of why he did this 180-degree turn? I feel like just the other week I was reading articles about how, you know, Sweden was really frustrated. This was going to be a long slog. There were ways for NATO to kind of get around Erdogan's blockade and incorporate Sweden and in sort of backdoor ways into the alliance, but it was not going to be easy. And then, you know, I woke up the other morning and there it was. Erdogan had changed his mind. Do we have any indication of what it was I mean he's mercurial, but presumably there's a there's a method to the madness. Yeah, I don't think it's just one factor. I imagine so. The method to the ma madness is drama. I mean Erdogan is a master of controlling the media. He realizes how much everyone needs his vote, um, and so he's basically been playing for time and playing for little concessions here and there that. Um, he can get out of uh, the West. And I think if you flip this and look at what does he really need, and there are two things really. I mean, of course, he he wanted those F-16s, and I think the commitment to get those to Ankara over time, even though there might be some conditions attached, um, for example, the fact that they might not be able to use those F-16s over um, Greek uh, airspace, um, for example, could be a thing. But of course, that should be seen in the context of uh, Turkey-Greece relations improving a bit, especially after the devastating earthquake that Turkey had in February. And Greece was very quick to come to Turkey's aid, which I think has improved relations between the two. But more broadly, if there's a, a number that that I think is very salient in this discussion, I think it that number would be 37.7 billion, and that is Turkey's current account deficit. 
which has ballooned um, over the last few months. Um, it is now at a record. And I think, quite frankly, Erdogan is worried about the economy in a way that he may not have been before, because they could be headed towards a balance of payments crisis. And, you know, I think we're also entering an era where foreign policy is just so intertwined with with economics and trade and economic relations. And, you know, Erdogan must have, you know, really been mulling over those numbers, those current account deficit numbers, and realized that, you know, if everyone sees him as the holdout, and if he's too unpopular, that could have economic ramifications. And he needs the West to invest in Turkey. He needs foreign companies to come in. Uh, he is going to need aid from international lending institutions as well. And he knows who holds the keys to them. So I think that's a big part of this as well um, that we may see playing out in the next few months. So before we close this topic out, I kind of want to zoom out and ask if we can make any conclusions tentative as they nevertheless will be. And of course, we still have a day of the summit left about what this summit and what the Ukraine issues and the Turkey issues and Sweden issues can tell us about what I think is kind of the ever present question, which is, you know, what is the state of, of NATO, right? Just a few days ago, the New York Times published a piece um, raising some concerns that, you know, now that we're over a year into this war, the initial um, solidarity among NATO nations is beginning to, to crack. There are some more tensions. At the same time, it seems to me that this summit is actually going quite well and NATO is functioning exactly as it should, uh, even though, of course, there are conflicts. So, you know, how, how you know, as, as, the, as the president would say, you know, is, is the state of NATO strong? Ravi, what do you think? You know, my, my overarching sense is yes, uh, it is strong. If you take it in the context of the last decade or so, it is much stronger than it was two years ago or five years ago or a decade ago. And so the trajectory, I think, is very important here. There are disagreements. Um, there will always be disagreements. And that's partly because of how NATO is set up. I mean, you can have uh, one country that, uh, such as Turkey, that sort of sticks out and holds up things like Sweden's accession or Finland's accession in the, in the past year. There are disagreements on um, spending levels, on how much to arm Ukraine, on other sort of issues on defense posture. I think longer term is where I worry more about divides within NATO. And the more that NATO tries to look beyond just the Russia issue, which clearly united them in a way that has rejuvenated the alliance over the last two years. But when it comes to China, um, when it comes to other NATO activities, say in Africa, I think that's what I look to when I sort of project forward and imagine where there might be even more serious divides uh, within NATO. I mean, for example, on China, which NATO last year uh, designated as a you know strategic threat, there are clear differences on how to deal with China between the United States and Europe. Uh, within Europe, there are very clear differences between, say, some of the Eastern European states, which need China a lot more um, than some of the Western European states. And then you have countries like France that, you know, every now and then just, you know, do France and say, well, um, we need to go our own way, or we need to take a whole bunch of CEOs to Beijing to make sure that we're doing business with China. So I think those are areas that I worry more about uh, the alliance's ability to stick together. But for now, 
flip all of this, if you were Vladimir Putin and you're looking at Vilnius, you're going to be worried. You're going to be worried by the signs you see of very clear unity. And beyond that, a clear focus in staying the course uh, and trying to make sure that Ukraine ends up, if not winning, at the very least, imposing serious long-lasting costs on Russia's military. So we've mentioned the fact that the United States has decided to give cluster bombs to Ukraine. And along with the NATO summit, I think this is kind of the big Ukraine news of the week. Um, So a cluster bomb, for listeners who aren't familiar, is a kind of munition that sort of breaks into different pieces. Um, Hence clusters. I've also seen them referred to as bomblets, which sounds incongruously cute. This news has caused a lot of consternation uh, in the press among disarmament advocates because cluster bombs are not widely used anymore. There is an international convention against their use. Um, Notably, neither the United States nor Ukraine nor Russia has signed on to it, and Russia has been using cluster bombs throughout the war so far. The Biden administration's reasoning is essentially, look, you know, Ukraine is in the middle of this crucial offensive. They're running out of other munitions. This kind of weapon can be extremely useful in doing what they need to do in terms of breaking through Russian lines. Um, And, you know, the American munitions that they're using would have a lower risk of potentially injuring civilians later on than the munitions that Russians have already been using on the same battlefields. The argument against this is essentially that, you know, these munitions have been shown to be dangerous. They have a tendency to sort of lurk in fields and injure civilians years and decades on. Uh, Much of the world does consider them to be something that should be barred in warfare. And so there's been a real debate um, going back and forth. Axios even had a piece suggesting that some members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are moving toward trying to prevent these weapons from being passed to Ukraine. So, Scott, let me start with you. And then, Ravi, I'm also curious for for your thoughts. What do you make of this debate? Um, What side do you come down on? How are you understanding the different arguments that are being made? It's a really difficult question. I think anybody who says it's an easy answer to this is not giving the issue due credit uh, and both sides due credit. You know, this is a case where the United States has kept these weapons in its inventory, has kept the legal authority to use them, has not signed on to treaties banning them for a strategic reason. Um, They're essentially force multipliers. They allow you to take a single rocket, a uh, single missile, and do with it uh, what you would otherwise require a range of armaments to do, because you're turning one rocket into 20 rockets, 30 rockets, 40 rockets with these little bomblets distributing across an area. You know, that is something that is particularly useful for Ukraine in this particular moment, because Ukraine is, you know, fighting with a well-armed and well-supported by NATO and other allies, but nonetheless, you know, constrained in a lot of regards military uh, with military hardware. It doesn't have air superiority. It can't control and target weapons and deliver things with the sort of precision and volume that the United States can in asymmetrical warfare type environments like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan. Um, That's just not what Ukraine's dealing with. And frankly, that's not like the type of wars you're likely to see between um, major powers or major military powers, right? That's kind of a weird historical exception the United States has lived in for the last 20 to 30 years. Um, Instead, they, every inch of territory is really hard fought 
hard won, hard fought and hard won. And when you see an opening, you want to make the most of it. And that is what cluster munitions let you do. The downside is that they're really damaging on territory. They linger for a long time. And the trade-off of this means of this decision by the Biden administration is that Ukraine's probably going to be able to fight the war more effectively now. And we're probably going to hear about Ukrainian children 10 years from now, if God willing, Ukrainians win um, and take their territory back who die at the hands of an American weapon um, because they find it in a field. And that's going to be horribly tragic and a hard thing to live through. And we're going to look back at it and say, God, was this really worth it when you see that human cost? I think probably the factor that tips it, tipped the case in this case for the Biden administration, um, certainly this is what Jake Sullivan suggests in his comments kind of justifying the decision, is that this is a war being fought by Ukraine who's asking for these on Ukrainian territory. Um, and that in the end, they are the ones who are in the position to make those sorts of really hard decisions about how do we balance the future health and well-being of our territory, of our population versus their immediate needs in this ongoing conflict. That said, you know, the thing to bear in mind about this is that this is going to be an ongoing dialogue. You don't just hand over a box of these weapons and that's it, and Ukraine can do whatever it wants with them. There's a supply chain. It's going to be an ongoing relationship. Um, it is going to be subject to conditions and discussions and agreements that the United States can put limits on. I, for example, guarantee you that there will be a limit that says you can only use these in Ukrainian territory. You can't use them in Russia, um, which has been the case with a lot of armaments that the United States has provided to Ukraine. Uh, Crimea, I'd be curious actually what the position is on Crimea. I suspect they will be allowed to use it on Crimea but maybe not. I mean, maybe they'll see that as as uh, difficult if that's territory that's seen as likely as remaining in Russian hands de facto, if not de jure. So, you know, the United States is going to be in a position to exercise leverage. That's what you get when you build these sorts of relationships. They are a double-edged sword because they're a dependency, essentially, if you're going to keep using these weapons. And so the conversation will keep happening, and the United States is going to have to make efforts to make sure Ukraine uses these responsibly um, and not recklessly. But that said, I, I see the logic of both sides. I, I share the concern with these weapons, but I'm I'm not ultimately surprised and I'm not sure I even disagree with the Biden administration's ultimate decision um, and where it came out on this, although it's a hard call. Ravi, how do you, what do you, what is your sense of it? What, what, what enters into your balance of the different factors here? I mean, I thought that was a really good summary. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that like, I don't have to make that decision, you know, and, and so I'm with you on that. You know, the framework through which I see this is that war sucks. Tough decisions have to be made. And, you know, last week when I was interviewing um, Anders for Rasmussen, who's uh, the former NATO Secretary General, of course, you know, and I was pushing him on why Biden would make this decision. And he said something that really just stayed with me. He said, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And then he went on to explain why it was necessary. And I feel like that's a useful lens through which to see it. It is awful. Like there is no, no one who should be making the case for why this is a good thing. It is an awful thing in an awful situation. But in as much as the guiding force behind the decision is that Ukraine is using it anyway, they need more. They are using it on their turf, on their soil they are likely the ones who will suffer the most from it and they still want to use it in as much as those are sort of the decision points the decision sort of factors i get why the biden administration is doing this i think they they really need to to shift the tide of of the counteroffensive right now and this is one way that they can at least try to push you know, Russian sort of uh, 
military from the positions that they're in. It sort of, you know, could help that a little bit. Desperate times, desperate measures, really. Yeah, I don't think I have anything particularly intelligent to add in terms of the wisdom of of this move. And I probably agree with Ravi and Scott that it is both unfortunate and necessary. Um, I am curious if the pushback we're seeing from at least some members of Congress, where there is kind of an interestingly bipartisan flavor to that pushback with a combination of sort of progressive Democrats, along with your sort of more isolationist Republicans, who I'm not sure care that much about the cluster munitions issue, but I think are more just finding this a useful way of kind of pushing back against American support for Ukraine. I, I'm curious if that will dissipate in a few days and we'll never hear about this, or, or if this sort of might be the beginning of a more critical pushback from this sort of far left and far right caucus kind of working together that for its own reasons uh, is getting increasingly skeptical of, of U.S. support to Ukraine. My instinct is it will dissipate in the specifics I think we should all be really glad that they are raising concerns, uh, human rights concerns, uh, the likes of which we've been discussing. I mean, we will hear of horrific deaths um, because of dud bomblets that will explode at some point in the future. This will affect children and civilians. We should talk about it. It's really good that folks in Congress are bringing this up. But as you point out, they may be bringing it up in a Machiavellian way in that it serves broader points that they want to make in any case, which is the broader issue of U.S. support um, for Ukraine. And so we have certainly not heard the last of that debate. I think, um, you know, the, the progressives will, will continue to question in their own way um, how much support should be given and what kind of support. And on the right, as we know from some of the people who are running for the GOP nomination, there's a there's a broader sort of question, a strategic question of whether the U.S. should be supporting Ukraine at all in a quote-unquote territorial dispute, to use Ron DeSantis's phrase, um, instead of focusing on China. So obviously, I think cluster munitions would come up in that context, but now that that decision is made and promises have been made, I, I, I think, you know, this particular issue will will end up sort of getting buried over the next few weeks. Um, but the broader issue will have other flashpoints within them, I imagine. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I, I 100% agree with that. And I think that there's a potentially tricky dynamic emerging here for Ukraine um, that's worth thinking about a little bit. Uh, and I don't know exactly the trajectory it's going on, but this is where I'm worried it's going to some extent, which is that there is a broad presumption around 
many primarily Republican legislators, almost entirely Republican legislators, that the Biden administration is is both not helping Ukraine enough in certain ways, at least for those who support backing Ukraine, and then doing what they are doing too expensively, committing too much U.S. resources or taking too much focus away from China, other strategic priorities. And it creates this little tricky dynamic where essentially you have a lot of legislators who want to say, this is setting aside kind of the extreme isolationist crowd, but in kind of the more middle band, a lot of legislators that want to find ways to criticize what the Biden administration is doing while also showing some degree of support to Ukraine. They want talking points. They can say, here's what I've helped give to Ukraine. This proves my bona fides of saying I'm not weak on Russia. I'm strong on backing Ukraine. That frees me to oppose other parts of the Biden agenda. And this is really tricky, I think, actually, for Ukraine and a hard thing for them to think about, because the inclination is to say, I want to keep making all these asks of Congress. Um, we see all these legislative proposals saying, oh, let's designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism or make up a new designation to assign to Russia. Let's do these other measures that are primarily symbolic or have a somewhat limited marginal impact from a policy perspective. Congress is gloms onto those. We see members of Congress really get attracted to those ideas, including in this camp. And I think part of the reason is because they're free talking points. They're talking points that you see legislators are going to be in a position to be able to use and say, oh, of course I back Ukraine. I think Russia's state sponsor of terrorism and I want to designate them as such, whereas the Biden administration won't even do that. But because they have those talking points, if they collect enough of those, they're much freer to push back on the other types of assistance that they don't like from a bottom line perspective, but that's probably much more important to Ukraine, which is frankly straight military and security assistance right now. And so it's going to become, as this tension builds, I think a, a more difficult trade-off that Ukraine needs to think about. Like you can't make too many asks or engage too much with Congress on this because you're just giving talking points to people who are trying to find a way to weasel out of giving you the support you need. And you've got to keep the focus on the most important items as the environment grows more skeptical which is a trajectory that seems to be headed in. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully that's an overly cynical take of the politics around this, but I'm a little worried that's what the next 12 months is, is likely to, to, to look like. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, we've all been talking about how good Ukraine's PR is, how strategic they've been in you know, not only making uh, requests, but in sort of airing them out publicly, in sort of being able to portray themselves as defenders uh, of the West, uh, and also sort of being very attuned to different talking points uh, uh, within various factions uh, in the United States. As much as we talk about all of that, I, I think, you know, one way of looking at what you're saying is there is a danger that they could be too clever by half if they try to play too many of these sides against each other in the US, that could end up backfiring longer term. I, I think that they've been very disciplined um, so far, but but they they do walk it up to that line where they seem just a bit too attuned to the debate here. Well, let us transition the conversation from dropping bomblets to throwing bombs, uh, because we have seen a little bit of a tiff arise between two of our glorious tech geniuses that uh, loom over the landscape of our society in the form of Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. Uh, One that is manifested in ways with real consequences day to day for those of us who live in the media environment that we uh, all live in these days, at least the four of us on this call. And that is a new contender that has emerged to Twitter, which was for a very long time kind of the town square um, of certainly the American media, of a lot of Americans, a lot of people around the world. I, I don't think I think that was actually a claim that was was fairly accurate, and a descriptor that's fairly accurate for a long time, but has been on the decline since coming under the ownership of Elon Musk, and now is facing its stiffest competitor yet, 
the Threads app, which Meta, the company owned by Mark Zuckerberg and led by Mark Zuckerberg, formerly known as Facebook, has rolled out that uh, attracted 100 million users in its first week. Now, admittedly, a lot of those being imported from Instagram, an existing platform, but nonetheless, a pretty broad reach, pretty fast, which has obviously stirred some alarm in the Elon Musk camp to the point that he is challenging Zuckerberg to a penis measuring contest on Twitter, uh, among other fairly childish measures. Literally. I I think it's very important to understand that he called Zuckerberg a cuck and suggested that they measure penises. To which Zuckerberg, I have to say, who's just impressing me more and more every day, just responded, this is concerning. (laughs) Although it's also important to note that that the there's like a six hour difference between the cuck tweet and the penis measuring tweet. Like he posted the cuck tweet and then he was he sat there and then six hours later he was like, you know what? I could really add something to this. Yeah, it's like, how do I diffuse this situation? <laughs> it was getting ratioed. He wasn't getting the enough likes, you know? You gotta you gotta up the ante a little bit. Despite the somewhat absurd and ridiculous optics of this competition, it's got real consequences because now we're seeing a pretty big center of gravity, more so than I think for other platforms in terms of scope, although it's different when you're talking about different types of users of uh, Twitter. But in terms of sheer scope, and particularly I feel like the kind of popular culture element, a lot of it people are signaling that Threads is where they see their social media engagement moving. Um, and this is all happening at a time when Twitter is facing in the last week just a kind of barrage of technical issues, including some that have affected our very own lawformedia.org, much to our annoyance. So Alan, let me start with you on this, because I know you are a big fan of another competitor of Twitter from back in the day that you've written on extensively. <laughs> and I've thought a lot about this. Tell, tell us a little bit about where this fits into this conversation. Like, What does it mean that Threads is here and has so quickly established itself as having a major network of users? And what will it mean to have a diversified information kind of ecosystem as we get to the 2024 election and other events that we know are going to be hubs of disinformation and, and discussion? Ah, uh, Mastodon. We, we, we hardly knew ye. So you're, you're right, Scott, that I, I have been following Mastodon with uh, a lot of interest. I've even written some academic work up about it. And you toot, you toot with the best of them. I do. I do. You know what? So this is the irony, though. Like, despite me being into like academically super interested in all these issues, I am when it comes to my actual practice, like super boring. I'm still basically just on Twitter. I still hate it. I'm actually kind of excited for all these social media companies to to burn, so that maybe I can stop doing this and go back to just engaging with the world through RSS feeds, which honestly I still think is the peak of uh, communications technology on the internet. The the last couple of months or the last, I don't know, six months or so, thinking about Threads, thinking about Blue Sky, thinking about Mastodon, I think to me has pointed out some ways in which I was sort of wrong in my initial excitement about Mastodon as a replacement for Twitter, but that maybe I was right about sort of the bigger picture um, and what matters going forward. What I think the really remarkably quick rise of Threads, which has gotten tens of millions of users basically overnight, What I think that shows is how important user-facing design is, um, how important it is when you're building a social network to make it fun and to make it really easy to use. You know, part of that for threads is not any genius design. It's just that they're basically taking your Instagram login and then allowing you to use that for your threads and also to keep all your followers. And so it's a way of preserving that social media capital that you've built up, right? That, that's, that's, there's nothing innovative about that. They're just exploiting very intelligently. And that's exactly what they should be doing, an existing network effect. But part of it is also, I think, them realizing that, you know, things like 
algorithmic news feeds, um, which Mastodon does not implement, and things like quote tweets, which I think Threads does implement, or if, if it doesn't, it's going to. Um, but either way, something also Mastodon does not implement. Um, these things are really important. Now, Mastodon has reasons for not implementing them. They have ideological reasons, um, and I respect those reasons. But you know, you have to pay for your ideology at some point, and one of those is with mass adoption. So, in that sense, you know, I, I don't, I no longer think, in a way that I, I thought was at least possible a year ago, that Mastodon was going to replace Twitter as the future platform. I'm still not sure it's going to be Threads. Maybe it'll be Blue Sky. Maybe it'll be something else. But whatever it is, it's going to be something really slick and something really fun and something really easy and something that does not try to solve the pathologies of modern social media, right, in a way that Mastodon tried to, because people like the pathologies of modern social media, sadly. On the other hand, what I think is really notable about Threads and Blue Sky as well is that they're both decentralized. Um, and I think it's something we haven't really talked about. So like Mastodon, Threads is built on the ActivityPub protocol. So the architecture, although it's currently basically entirely controlled by Meta, will interoperate with ActivityPub. So, you know, from the outside, threads will just look like any other ActivityPub instance. Now, it'll be the biggest one by far. It'll have tens of millions of users and it'll have outsized effects. But Meta is still committing itself to decentralization and it's still committing itself to letting go of some control and of not being able to exercise quite the same level of exhaustive moderation that it currently does on Instagram and Facebook. I mean, they'll still be able to moderate the threads servers, but you know, people will still be able to access threads from outside of threads and people will be able to access things outside of threads from inside of threads. That's notable. Blue Sky is also decentralized, not on ActivityPub, but on some other protocol. And I think what that does show is that the thing that most excited me about Mastodon, which was the decentralized nature, that thing is really going to be the future. And people are going to build applications on top of that, and we'll see what application wins, but that the future is fundamentally decentralized. And we can talk about why that is um, and what the benefits and cons are. I think that is, in addition to being the future, also a, a good thing. And so this is what I mean when I say, I think, I think I was wrong about Mastodon itself, but I think I was right about what was interesting about Mastodon, which was the decentralized aspect. And it's just, I just, I, I have to emphasize, I just, it, it is really notable that, you know, a lockdown system like Meta um, has decided for its next social media platform to go decentralized. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I guess um, I <laughs> big big shocker that I'm I'm going to disagree with with Alan. Um, I will we got to hear both sides, Quinta. Please go ahead. Bring it, bring it. <laughs> oh, 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 how the how the tables have turned. Yeah, Alex Demos at the uh, Stanford Internet Observatory has posted some on Threads, making the argument that this activity pub. Uh, commitment is kind of a red herring, whether or not Meta understands it as such, and saying that they're, he would guess that they're probably not going to be end, end up committing to ActivityPub because it means that they're going to have to deal with a lot of content uh, that they'll be responsible for when it's cross-posted onto their servers that they have no moderating capacity over. So, so it... Well, sorry, can I, so can I, can I, can I just make, yeah. make a quick technical point there? So I haven't read the, the what do they call them, threads? Threads no now, thread, three, whatever. Um, Piece of it, string. It, to, to, to be clear, the, the, the point of ActivityPub is not that you have to let everything onto your instance. It's just that overall, anything can exist on the network. So, you know, it, it, they will still be able to moderate crap from outside if, if, they, if they want to. Yeah, I mean, my, my understanding, and without speaking for Alex, is just that it, it involves a certain level of, you you lose a certain amount of control if people are posting things onto threads that are not within threads. Um, and that if you are meta, the 
pros and cons of that are the calculus is substantially different because you're a billion dollar company. So I don't know. I will say actually, I big shocker um, had more of a downer view on the whole thing and that we had this sort of moment where the future of social media could have been decentralized, not run by a billionaire. And now it's, there was this moment where it seemed like blue sky might come to the fore. I, have some thoughts about the distinctions between Blue Sky and Threads. And now Threads seems poised to kind of scoop up the market. And I just frankly find that find that kind of depressing insofar as it means that, you know, we're now going from a world where there are, you know, three or four huge social media companies to a world where there are three or two or three social media companies. Um, And the, you know, continuing hegemony of meta, I don't think is honestly particularly good for anybody. Um, Now, of course, people will say uh, Jack Dorsey is on the board of Blue Sky, which is true. Um, I think that Mastodon was sort of the ideologically purest, for lack of a better term, uh, model here. But it does just strike me as kind of depressing, frankly. Ravi, I'd be really curious about your perspective on this, particularly as someone who runs a media platform. I mean, a, a magazine, obviously, but you're more than a magazine with podcasts and videos. And that is obviously kind of walking the line between old media and new media. What challenges does this present? And particularly when you think about disinformation and responsibilities as an editor, as a publisher, how does this intersect with that, with all these different outlets? That's such a great question. But, you know, before I come to that, I just wanted to riff off of um, uh, Alan and Quinta's points. I, I agree that decentralization is going to be really important in the future. But I also think there's one other component to this that I've been thinking a lot about over the last few years, and that's that we're never going to have one global public square again. I think the early days of Twitter, you know, back when it launched, it was so cool that you could discover, you know, if there's a an air, an air sort of incident in Schiphol Airport, someone is going to sort of microblog about that on Twitter and you find out instantly. And you, that, that, that sort of very global connected sense, that sort of monoculture moment where everyone's on it and therefore I have to be on it and therefore it's indispensable. I think that moment's kind of gone pre-Elon Musk. And I think he's accelerated all of that because of the way in which he's handled Twitter. But, you know, there are so many other platforms now. Um, there are so many other parts of the world that think of social media in a very different way. I mean, Threads isn't even uh, in Europe for now. So uh, even though the numbers are as, as large as they are, a large part of the world has been ignored. You know, personally, uh, and this is where all of your listeners will think I'm a, I'm a freak, but I use LinkedIn and I think that that's sort of the earnest, verified kind of place that I tend to trust because, you know, I mean, people are just less rude on LinkedIn because I can see where they went to school and I can see who their boss is. And sweet, sweet Ravi. I love it. He just he wants I to know, use right? LinkedIn. Can't we all just use LinkedIn? <laughs> use LinkedIn. It's LinkedIn is great. Uh, people are just not as rude. Um, and, and the engagement is nicer. But, but, but all of that said, you know, if we enter this sort of fragmented world, um, you know, there's a lot of wish fulfillment about threads as well. And, and I think we see that in the Zuck kind of Elon fight where, you know, 
we're also mad at Elon Musk that we're kind of rooting for for Zuck to succeed with Threads. And I think ultimately, like a, a lot of what Zuck is doing with Threads is this massive gathering of data, which I think they're going to use for AI. I think they have figured out um, the advertising game better than anyone else, bar Google. And this is, you know, one more way in which they're going to be listening to our discussions and, you know, synthesizing our words and be able to sell us uh, everything from from underwear to shoes in, in a way that is even more eerie than before. So there's all of that. But Scott, to answer your question, as as a news publisher, and I say this as, you know, the editor of a magazine that really focuses on subscriptions. Uh, we, we've been burned in the past by the promise of advertising, by the promise of clickbait, by the promise of big numbers, by the promise of relying too much on uh, social media, let alone one social media platform. So we actually get very little traffic from social media. Search is much bigger for us. We also focus much more on the people who are paying for FPs, the so subscribers versus general readers. And I think that's, that's also more of an industry trend where, you know, there, there's a broader disillusionment with advertising and with being held hostage to a social media platform. I mean, all it, all it would take, um, let's say, Twitter or, or threads ends up being like five or 10% of your revenue in some form if they control it. All it takes is a tiny tweak of an algorithm and then you've lost that amount of revenue and then you need to lay off journalists. I mean, so uh, as an editor, to me, it's infuriating that I would ever need to depend on them. And I think for years now, we've been trying to depend on any of these platforms less and less and less, rely more on other ways of reaching people directly, uh, rely more on search and SEO, which to some extent makes us dependent on Google and Bing and other search engines. So there's that, but also just diversifying in a world in which social media is more fragmented, different types of communities, different types of geographies are using different platforms. And you want to reach all of them. You kind of have to play all of these games. And I, I feel much more comfortable hedging my bets uh, across 20 different platforms than I do any one. And so what I'm looking forward to the most uh, um, from Threads really is that they get on Buffer, which is a, a software we use to put out the same piece on several different platforms all at once. And I would like them to extend their API to allow us to be able to post on Threads just as we do on other platforms without curating for it separately. Um, so if they make it easier for us, I think we'll use it more. But I I refuse to depend or rely on any one platform. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially because Threads was produced by the same people who brought you the pivot to video of 2015, which led to... Totally the complete decimation of the journalism industry. And I've seen a lot of folks say, you know, I'm not trusting Zuckerberg ever again. Uh, Adam Massari, the head of Instagram, and now I guess also the head of Threads, um, posted saying that they're intentionally trying to design the platform so that it is not a hotbed of news and current events. Um, query how sustainable that commitment will be, but I think it's consistent with a larger kind of rollback that we've seen on the Facebook platform um, of the extent to which the platform was boosting news topics. Um, that's a complicated issue because part of that rollback had to do with trying to lower, you know, toxic conversations and 
uh, metrics that lead to increased polarization on the platform, but it also really, really hurt news organizations um, in terms of their reach. And so it does seem like Threads now is sort of currently designed not to be an app where publishers can do very much, which, you know, there's whatever happens, digital media will always lose. It's just one of the iron laws of the universe. Um, I would maybe hope that that would, as you say, Ravi, kind of perhaps make us all think a little bit more about what it means to be so dependent on a single platform or a set of platforms and try to diversify away from that. Um, but it's hard to say. Well, and I think that really underscores what I expect to come out of this to some extent, which is that like we're not going to have not only are you not going to have one square, you're going to have different sub-communities in different squares or using different platforms for very different purposes, right? Like Threads does seem like, at least right now, this could change, but is going to have both an inclination against becoming like a news aggregator and a big forum for news and political discussion and might have some disadvantages there because of its messy history with Facebook and Facebook's own difficult experiences with those issues and the distrust it breeds in journalists and frankly, like a lot of people on the political left and a lot of people in policy circles because Meta has such a messy history of this. But that hub of people, frankly, the conventional media, their use of Twitter is what made Twitter so powerful for a lot of people. Um, it's a big reason why it was such a political driver and why you saw people become kind of like, you know, not overnight, but near overnight celebrities around certain issues is because they would hit a hot thread on Twitter, and then all of a sudden they would be on MSNBC or on CNN or on Fox News, depending on what they're talking about and their inclination, and they would get kind of amplified. And it was this huge way to enter yourself into a much bigger media ecosphere. And like, that's the question to me is, when is the conventional media, a center of gravity going to shift? And where is it going to shift to another platform? And is it going to be just one? Because we already see different communities use different platforms really differently. Like LinkedIn, to me, is the one that I associate with private sector. Like my friends who are in consulting or finance or business, like they're all over LinkedIn. They put so much more stuff on LinkedIn than any other platform. Facebook is old people, I think, primarily. I don't really know what Facebook is for, but it's like a lot of people about family and pictures and things like that. Instagram was well, like... it's a lot of traffic from Facebook, Scott. Don't I, be rude. I, and I love it. <laughs> I love, I, and I, you know, I am an old person uh, by most measures at this point. So, uh, you know, I'm not... No, no hate. I'm just saying, but it's like a different demographic I haven't quite figured out. Um, but Instagram was like young and people who are like care about celebrity and picture and image because so much more visually based. And Thread seems to be trying to kind of draft in behind Instagram and say, yeah, we're going to be a pop culture discussion. We're not going to try and be, be like a big newsy heavy site. And maybe that's good for outreach and sheer number of users, but it's it's not as good for these certain ways people use Twitter powerfully in the back era. And so a lot of it is going to be weird market cultural forces about how this all sorts out. And, and I don't think there's a clear path, but a much more, you know, diverse kind of system of these things to my mind just means we end up with more specialized kind of niches as opposed to Twitter, which somehow, while there are still those other niches, pulled much more heavily from all of them in, in a unique way. Honestly, I think that's great. I think I it think it might that, not be a bad thing. Yeah. yeah I'm not I think general thing. public squares are hugely overrated. I mean, we're just not meant like human beings are meant to, you know, know 150 people, right? That's the Dunbar number, right? Um, it's bad enough uh, that modernity requires us to, you know, keep thousands of people in our minds. But a public square of a billion people is just an absolute disaster. You just get endless context collapse. It's absolutely miserable. And yeah, I would I would so much rather a, a tiny social media 
uh, platform with, you know, journalists, policy people and academics. And just like, I, that's all I want to talk about. I don't need every all the other crap coming into my to my feed. Yeah, I think you need to stop this thing, whatever it is that you're describing. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, LinkedIn just sounds so nice. But I, th- th- I will say there is an interesting question, Ravi, like about why LinkedIn can't play this role. Um, like you're right. It, it's a bunch of professionals. There are real reasons why the tenor of this conversation will be better because right? you're like employer and all that stuff is, is right there. I actually don't understand why LinkedIn can't do this, except for the fact that it is just undeniably not a cool platform. And so like, I feel like there's, I think as silly as that sounds, some of that does get, get in the way, but like, God, I'm happy to just move to LinkedIn. I'm like, I'm plenty boring. I I would encourage you to, I would encourage you to look at it. I mean, it is, you're right. It's not particularly cool. It's incredibly earnest, but um, you know, when I post things about foreign policy on LinkedIn, I get a lot of engagement and I get, um, sometimes critical messages, sometimes supportive messages, but unfailingly, they are actually smart. Um, they read the thing that I've posted. They make points that are important points. Uh, they actually behave again because, you know, their bosses are looking at them. Their networks are looking at them. And so I, I think LinkedIn has really begun to expand outside of just the private sector, outside of uh, economics and, you know, posts about jobs. I mean, I'll give you one data point. When I post something, I can actually search and see which companies are looking at my posts the most. Top two, most days, U.S. Department of State, U.S. Defense Department. They're looking, they're watching, they're engaging. So I think it's, it's really begun to sort of move outside of the private sector. But again, it's very geeky. It's very wonky. And, you know, I, I celebrate that. I mean, the, uh, you know, if, if it attracts geeks and wonks and, and they're enjoying themselves there, more power to all of them and me. Well, folks, unfortunately, we will have to end the conversation there because we're out of time and bring it to LinkedIn or Twitter or Mastodon uh, and uh, continue the conversation in another form of our choice. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lesson to ponder over in the week to come until we are back in your podcatcher. Alan, what do you have for us this week? Scott, I think you'll be really proud of me because I'm finally doing a music recommendation and it's a live music recommendation. Hey. Um, So one of my absolute favorite artists is uh, Bella Fleck, who is, I think, the greatest American banjoist of his generation, which I know sounds kind of niche, but seriously, this guy is a like monster virtuoso. And I actually like one of my first bands that I was like super into when I was a teenager was his progressive jazz bluegrass fusion group, Bella Fleck and the Fleck Tones. Uh, so good. I still can't listen to Sinister Minister without, without grooving to the embarrassment of everyone around me. Um, but he is currently uh, on tour. He, he just released- demonstrated it, folks, and it was, yeah. in fact, embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> the brief yeah, moment there's, of there's like, there's, that, there's like that the white guy underbite and stuff. It's 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 good. <laughs> um, so uh, he is currently on tour to promote his latest album, uh, which goes back to his kind of bluegrass roots. It's called My Bluegrass Heart, and it won uh, actually won the Grammy Award uh, for Best Bluegrass Album. And he's coming to uh, Minneapolis this week to the Dakota, which is our uh, fabulous jazz club. Um, and we're going. My wife and I are going to to see him uh, this week, and I am so very excited. Uh, so, you know, he's still on tour, uh, this summer, but even if you can't watch him on tour, um, he is always worth listening to his latest is my bluegrass heart. But again, I, I still have a soft spot for his, um, 
for his uh, Flectones, uh, for his Flectones days. But he also has an amazing album. I forget what it's called, um, but it's an album of classical music. Uh, like a lot of um, uh, classical guitar pieces, like uh, like uh, Segovia transcriptions, which then he retranscribes for banjo, and it's it's insane. It's just completely unclear how he's making that music, and it's it's just fabulous. So uh, yeah, go listen to Bella Fleck. All right, I like it. Good diversifying our music scene. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I would like to talk about the Barbie nine dash line controversy, which is maybe my favorite thing that has happened in the last several months. So listeners are surely aware that there is a Barbie movie coming out next week, directed by, of all people, Greta Gerwig, written by, of all people, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. And it is banned in Vietnam because Vietnam claims that the Barbie movie uh, promotes the Nine Dash Line. Uh, China's territorial claims in the South China Sea, very controversial. It is not totally clear still, like, what specifically in the Barbie movie uh, is promoting the Nine Dash line. I think the closest that people have gotten is a screenshot of Barbie standing in front of, like, a sort of scribbled map of the world that is very clearly supposed to be inaccurate because all the continents have like continued to drift apart from one another. And Asia is like rotated 90 degrees straight up and down. Uh, There are some dash lines. There is one by Greenland, uh, which is 10 dashes. And there is one by Asia, which is, I will note eight dashes, but it's not located by the South China sea. So I truly have no idea what's going on here. I love everything about this. I should say, I don't like I could definitely buy that somebody in Hollywood was like, we can totally get a win and get this distributed in China if we just like doodle a dash here. Nobody will notice. I can also buy that um, in the words of someone interviewed in The New York Times about this very important controversy, the Vietnamese censors just like wanted to make themselves seem important. And this is also a win for Vietnam because now, you know, everybody is talking about uh, Vietnam's opposition to the nine dash line. Uh, you listener, you can make up your mind for yourself. Uh, but I am now completely obsessed with this. And we're going to see it next week. Are you joining the, uh, the lawfare Barbie outing Quinta? Hell yes. Oh man, it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to keep an eye out for the nine dash line while we're there. I wasn't aware this was scheduled in the middle of the workday. <laughs> I don't know who approved this. That's okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Certainly nothing ever happens uh, after 1 PM on a Friday in our industry, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> we'll see how that works out. Um, well, for my object lesson this week, I am uh, giving a big thank you to a listener who recommended a book to me like over a year ago now. I somehow just downloaded it, never got around to actually listening to and or reading it, which I've been kind of switching back and forth on for the last week as I've gotten through it. But it's just phenomenal. And it's a classic of science fiction um, that I cannot recommend enough. And somehow is I feel like has fallen off the radar, whereas it used to be considered a real classic and people don't talk about it enough. And that's Red Mars, which is part of Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal, really like literary work about a bunch of individuals who are among the first colonists of Mars and follows their trajectory and their lives and their uh, internal psychology as they wrestle with entering a whole new kind of era of human history and shaping politics and watching Earth become a more alien place and finding more uh, at home on Mars. 
in this new planet they've built and are terraforming. And it goes into incredible detail on the science and which is evidently quite credible. It was written in 1992 or 1993. I will say there's some stuff in there that probably wouldn't be in there today. <laughs> kind of regrettable. Very strong takes on the Swiss in a weird way. He keeps coming back to having very strong views about Switzerland. I don't totally understand. Maybe it was a 90s thing. I'm not caught up on regardless. Um, but just a phenomenal read. Like just fascinating, really well done, very compelling characters. Um, so I'm really excited. It's part of a trilogy, which I'm now digging into book two of. So cannot recommend that enough. And thank you, listener, who's I, I could not identify who it was before. But thank you so much for recommending this uh, way back when when I asked for science fiction recommendations. It's a great one. And I'm very excited to get through the rest of the trilogy. Ravi, why don't you bring us home? What do you have for us this week? Sure. Well, I'm definitely going to watch The Hunt for Red October um, this evening. Uh, I've downloaded it, paid three ninety nine for it on Apple. <laughs> I'm going to watch it on watch it on the train back to New York. But my my object lesson um, is a bit of a shameless plug, um, which kind of works nicely given our discussion about publishers and how we have to find other ways to monetize what we do. But um, I host a podcast called FP Live and. Uh, as the name suggests, I mean, it's FPE and it's live. And we often have um, live discussions on our website with uh, really interesting, wonky, you know, world leaders, foreign ministers, um, people who really understand the issues that they work in. Um, and we dive deep into one big issue every week and sometimes more than once a week. That's live on our website. Anyone can join in for free. And if you want to watch the on video, if you want to watch the whole thing, the back catalog, um, you need to sign up to subscribe. But it's also a podcast, which I urge everyone to sign up for. Last week, as uh, I mentioned earlier in this program, we had uh, uh, Anders for Rasmussen uh, talking about the NATO summit and the future of NATO. But this week, we've got a really cool one uh, in which we're debating whether China's peaked or not. And it's a great discussion because we're always thinking about whether you know, how to conduct, how to prosecute US policy uh, on China. But what there seems to be very little agreement on is, you know, where China is. I mean, has it really peaked uh, in its growth? Or will demographics and a range of other factors lead it downwards? And if there's so much disagreement on on China's trajectory, then how on earth are we going to agree on China policy? Um, so that's a debate we've structured with with you know people for and against, uh, very smart people who have done some research on it. But that's just an example of of the kinds of debates we do. And we've recently had on John Kerry on climate cooperation with China, Colin Carl, who's at DOD on uh, America's defense posture and a range of other terrific guests. So anyway, end of my shameless plug, but definitely urge and recommend all of you to uh, download FP Live wherever you get your audio. Wonderful. What a wonderful recommendation. But for better or for worse, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rascal Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us on our new webpage at lawfaremedia.org for our show page with links to past episodes, for show links that we reference in our discussions, for our written work, the work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And while you're at it, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And while you're at it, also sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special perks. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan, and we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, and our special guest, Ravi Agrawal, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, 
Goodbye. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.